It's difficult for one to sit here and say how proud I am that I was involved in Radio Broccoli from its inception. But I'm very pleased and proud that it's been run and continued for 50 years. It's been a, an important part of my life for more than half of it, and I'm really happy to be able to contribute. It's a place where uh, I've had a lot of laughs, and uh, I've nothing but praise for the place, and I've nothing but happy memories of it. The most amazing thing about this place is we're a registered charity where nobody takes a wage. Everyone here is unpaid, gives up their free time and puts their all into the place. I've been volunteering here at Radio Broccoli for 43 years. I came here and it immediately clicked and uh, it's, it's just been a fantastic 40 odd years. So many of my best friends have come from Radio Broccoli. Um, my wife has come from Radio Broccoli um, and my career as well, so, you know, I can't thank Radio Broccoli enough for what it's done for me personally. Um, certainly to see it running now, I'm immensely proud that it's still here and it's producing good works. This has been part of my life for 39 years and I hope it will continue to be part of my life for, for the rest of my life in some way. I can look back into those days where I was a patient here, never dreamed that all those years ago when I was a child as a patient here that I would be involved in something like this. I'm ever so proud of you. You, the whole hospital radio station, because what we started off as being a bit of fun, you've kept it going and developed it and made it better and better and better over an extended period. You made it go 50 years so far and it seems to be going on such that it'll be going for a lot longer. The year is 1966 and the Beatles have just released their hit album Revolver. Miniskirts are all the rage and England have just won the World Cup. And in a tiny air raid shelter in northwest London, Radio Broccoli is born. Fifty years later and we're now London's longest running hospital radio station, still broadcasting to the bedsides of patients across the RNOH. The reason it's been here all that time? Hundreds of volunteers giving up days, weeks and months of their free time. I'm Molly Townsend. Over the next five weeks, we'll hear the story of Radio Broccoli from some of the people who helped run it over all these years. We'll hear how it started in an old air raid shelter for a couple of hours once a week and how it's gone on to be the UK's hospital radio station of the year for 2016. Today, in part one of our story, we'll hear from three of the men who set up Radio Broccoli way back in 1966. Mike Solomons, Ian Downs and Barry Cobden. This is the story of Radio Broccoli. The story has to start when I was three and a half years old. Mummy, how does this torch work? And the following morning, my mum showed me how a torch worked and gave me a battery, a bulb and a bit of wire. Fast forward to... Um, my teens, I was building radio equipment for fun. And um, that fast forwards into hospital radio when Dr. John Cohen, youth leader, originally asked me if I would be able to set up a hospital radio station at the Edgware General Hospital. That was Radio Edgware, London's first hospital radio station. I was always interested in electronics, but I was interested in radio, mainly because of the music and also because of the 
pirate radio stations that started up in the six, mid-60s and sadly faded away in about 66, I remember rightly, although a couple struggled on and they were pirate radio stations merrily playing music that people really, really did want to hear rather than the restrictions of the, the BBC. So we all heard a lot of music that we never heard and that to us as youngsters were, was very exciting and it inspired me to uh, get more involved with radio. Quite why radio inspired me that much, I don't know, but it certainly helped me in my future life. I got in touch with Radio Edge, I don't know quite how I remember how, but uh, Mike befriended me there. Um, they seemed to collect all their main members from the Jewish Youth Voluntary Organisation, of which I was not. Um, but I think I was about the only Gentile floating around there. But uh, I learned a lot from Mike, uh, key ways of doing things, and it was good fun. It's all also about learning about life, and which really helped. At school, I was um, active, along with Ian Downs, in what we used to call stage work. In fact, it might have been Ian who got me involved in that as well. As a consequence of that, I became interested in these sorts of technologies. There was an item in the local paper about Radio Edgware, which was a hospital radio station running at that time in the Edgware General Hospital, just down the road from here. And... Um, Ian, I think, actually went to Long to have a look one Sunday evening. They did a couple of hours on Sunday evenings, as most hospital radio services did when they first began, to see whether he, as somebody who was interested in the technology, would be able to be helpful and also whether he would enjoy it. Well, I think he did get interested, and he turned up at my home, my parents' home, during the week with somebody he'd met at Radio Edgeware, turned out to be Mike Solomons, who is a year or so older than Ian and I, and um, said, would I like to go down the following Sunday and have a play? Much of the equipment was, uh, or should we say, I built equipment that worked. Uh, Ian came along, that's Ian Downs, came along with equipment that he built, which was much better. I wasn't going to argue, we used his equipment which is a sensible thing to do, of course. And um, although I came in on the technical side, um, I quickly found myself uh, being responsible for admin for the very practical reason, of course, I was the oldest member, uh, which is a very good way of becoming the one in charge. I was 15, and my parents drove me down, and we had to look round, and... It was quite intriguing. The technology was very crude and very simple in those days. Um, and you had to do things like ward visiting, which, of course, is a major part of all hospital radio activities. And if you weren't interested in ward visiting, you, you found yourself not terribly popular and not really a, not um, towing the line, as it were, as a member of the radio station. The first time I went around the hospital wards, visiting and asking if there's anything we could do to help and asking if they could give us a request, which is what we really wanted. Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. I was getting quite annoyed with our members who were... Mm, too many of them came down for social reasons. And we had a number of arguments. You go and do something. I want you to do something, not just come along and chatter. And, of course, 
What happens at the annual general meeting if you've told the majority that they're not doing the right thing? They vote you out. And when I was voted out uh, and a new leader took over, uh, there was a, a general split. And what you might call my team weren't very happy about it. And in the end, we approached another hospital, the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore. We noticed that there was this hospital at Stanmore Orthopaedic which didn't have a hospital radio station and we wondered whether we could actually start one and run it the way we wanted to run it because we couldn't we weren't running the one in Edgware and there were one or two things that we felt that we would like to do differently. Now I had connections with Stanmore anyway because of the scouts scout group I helped to support um, on Sunday morning so I had a connection up here anyway. Mike Solomons would have been the front man um, he was about a year older than our good selves and he was always very vocal in that and pushing things forward. Uh, myself, I was quite shy and reluctant in certain ways, but also, um, you know, obviously the technology and the radio sort of buzzed me along. And um, Barry, again, with two degree technical. Um, Mike Alanick, um one of the other founding members, was uh, a legal person, not legal, but an accounting person, and uh, dealt with the, he was our initial treasurer for some period of time. And I think between him and Mike, they came up with the um, sort of trustee agreement, I can't remember what you call it now, for the charity, and he helped set up the charity at that time. Uh, I was, by the time we were approaching uh, this hospital, uh, I think I was about, yes, I must have been 18 years old. And with, I think the rest were all 16 or 17. And that year or two was an important difference. So um, uh, effectively, uh, I was instructed to be in charge for the purpose of negotiations. Uh, but the other thing, as you can probably hear in the way that I speak, I was taught to speak properly by my parents. My father was a lawyer and my mother used to teach elocution can be very useful. What I can remember is that we met in the office of the hospital group secretary. This hospital at that time was a part of a group. This was called the country branch of the hospital. The head office was in Great Portland Street and that was the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. That was the hospital that had developed and was developing the expertise in orthopaedics. It had expanded out to here, to the country branch, for two reasons, mainly. Um, one of them was um, because the treatment for tuberculosis in those days was to park people in hospital beds and give them lots of fresh air. And their air around here was quite fresh in those days, before the motorways, uh, and it's on a hill. And the other major activity that was undertaken by the country branch was um, a lot of the injuries as a result of the wars. So we had this appointment in his office, which is one of the offices not far from the main gate. And we sat in there, and he's quite a domineering character. And Mike Solomons has the ability to not be phased by that sort of thing. And so he drew himself up to his full height and said, you know, we'd like to do this. Originally, we met with, I think it must have been the the person who today would be called the chief executive. And I recall he was incredibly old, 
probably in his 50s. Um, <laughs> but then again, remember, I was 18. And uh, he accepted that as we'd set up Radio Edgware, we knew what we were doing. And he thought it might be quite a good idea to have a hospital radio station here. And then he instructed that we should meet with Mr. Upton, I think his name was, the hospital engineer, and we negotiated the details with him. Jack Upton suggested we set up in the old air raid shelter adjacent to Ward 1, Hut 1, uh, the bottom of the slope wards, which is no longer there. It's been demolished in one of the recent, um, not so recent, upgrades to the hospital and the upgrades to the operating theatres. But there was Hut 1, and next to it was the air raid shelter. I mean, in the old days, I mean, I wasn't alive during the Second World War, but I know I've seen air raid shelters all in different places up and down the country, and you have a brick box with a concrete roof, which is supposed to resist against bomb blasts, and people would dive into these air raid shelters when and if they felt they needed the protection. Biggest problem was it was just very, very damp. Those buildings weren't intended for long-term uh, occupancy. The reason we had that room... Um, was because the radio system for the whole of the hospital was situated there and the other half of the, the building, the air raid shelter, was uh, unused, it had small bedsteads in it, I think, but that was intrinsically very damp and that was quite problematical because it meant that uh, it did no nasty things to uh, crystal cartridges, which uh, we had to use in those days. Ian was fully in charge of setting up equipment by then and he had his equipment and bits and pieces that the rest of us had put together to make it work and um, it's a very funny story about that. You probably vague, well you'll recall playing records and you'll recall possibly um, moving magnet cartridges and moving coil cartridges. Well, this was a long time ago and we used crystal cartridges. Crystal cartridges went out of fashion, I suppose, really, in the 1960s or 70s. But they have a particular problem when it comes to a damp arid shelter. The sound quality wasn't quite as good as Ian wanted so he carried out a minor modification to his mixer. That improved things for a bit, but it still wasn't quite right, and over a period of months he made modification after modification after modification, until eventually there was nothing he could do to get the sound right, and that's when we realised that the crystal cartridges had slowly dissolved in the damp atmosphere. The present studio, being dry and warm, has huge advantages. <laughs> and the, the hospital had a rather nice tape recorder, which they used in the activities of the old um, concert hall, which is at the opposite end of the hospital, or was. And we were allowed to use that so we could record things and we could use tape, either tape that we'd recorded or tape-based material from elsewhere, in our programmes. We had no funds initially, and it was funded out of the fact that we had some. I had some equipment. I built the mixing console for it. Um, we just borrowed and cashed where we could. The hospital had a bit of stuff. The League of Friends for the hospital bought us a tape recorder um, about six, nine months down the line. 
and we did appeal in the local newspaper for tape recorders and we in, ended up with a whole collection which now would be deemed as museum pieces um, which I managed to salvage some of and uh, we got microphones given to us people had sat around so yes it was a bit of gifting um, quite a bit of our own money to put it all together Do you know we must have done it while I was directly involved but I don't remember raising money to buy anything we built it, scrounged it. Some people got these things from work. But um, Radio Broccoli has always been, in my experience, a station where people do things rather than where they pay somebody to do things. So that was the air raid shelter next door to Hut One, right next door to the hospital's own radio distribution system. And there was an arrangement whereby the hospital's uh, radio distribution system could be switched over to services that came from the chapel, which was at the top of the slope. Um, so there was an alternative input to the uh, to that system, either the radio, Radio 2, or something else. And Ian extended the something else so that the switch had three positions instead of two, normally Radio 2, sometimes the chapel, and other times Radio Broccoli. And that's where we started, and we were in there for several months. And I don't think that the trial period has ever ceased. We were very lucky, actually. No, we didn't. You know, you could have, we could have had loads of things go wrong. And I think the most important thing was everything was very, very simple. Um, and it was a great learning curve. And if something went wrong, you just very quickly sorted it out. Um, radio OBs were done on a long stretch of wire, and... Um, it may go up the main slope, the cabling, or may go across into wards. Um, again, health and safety would restrict you for doing that sort of thing, but we could achieve it. They allowed us to do it, and we had great fun, and the hospital patients seemed to appreciate what we were doing, which is the key thing. Well, we felt that we wanted to make um, the station largely, though not exclusively, music-based. I suspect part of the reason for that was we were all younger, you know, we were in our teens and we enjoyed pop music as well as anything else, although I also like classical music and jazz. And there's no point in sitting in this lovely studio and saying, you will hear this piece of music, you will hear that piece of music, if you didn't get an idea that that's exactly what the people in the hospital actually wanted to hear. And at that time, this hospital, probably uniquely or certainly fairly unusually, had patients who were, sadly, uh, lying on their backs for several months at a time because the nature of orthopedics is such that bones take a long time to heal. And we became quite friendly with quite some of the patients. One or two of the members of Radio Broccoli actually married uh, patients from here. Some people would do a bit of shopping for them, you know, go out and buy some cigarettes and bring them in. That sort of, you could smoke in those days. Uh, there were areas in the hospital where the patients could go and smoke. Um, little, it became, we felt that we became a useful service to the patients in the hospital. And that's an important part, I think, an important part of hospital radio's activities. So we took the decision that we wanted to make a largely music-based if we could get the response from the patients to indicate that we were playing the music that they liked. The original programmes, of course, were request programmes because that's easy. 
um, very interestingly, the members saw going round the wards collecting requests as a nuisance, if you like. That was the price you paid to be allowed to do some broadcasting. But actually, one of the things that became very obvious, even in the days of Radio Edgware, visiting patients in the wards was itself a very, very important um, service. Uh, because many of the people in the wards, in this hospital in particular, would go months without having a proper conversation with anybody. Where, in a specialist hospital like this, uh, somebody has come for months and months and months of attention from a few hundred miles away, the family can't come and see them every day. So having young people who are bubbling full of enthusiasm come and talk to them, that's wonderful. And mind the requests, the talking is good. I don't remember exactly whose idea it was to call the station Radio Broccoli. Um, it would have been one of the four of us who started the station or maybe one of our friends who were involved in the station right from the beginning but who weren't in an official capacity. But we thought about it and talked about it and I do remember discussing it. We didn't want to call it Radio Stanmore. We didn't want it to be too parochial because this was a national hospital. And we tossed around some ideas. I can't actually remember the other ideas that were involved. Radio Wood Lane, I'm not sure if that was one of them. But we, en we ended up with Radio Broccoli because the hospital is in Broccoli Hill in Stanmore. Uh, we felt it had a more broad appeal. The name for the radio station came up and a few people had much better ideas than mine, but... Um whole a number of uh, names were put forward and broccoli I didn't, it doesn't really sort of roll off the uh, tongue but it it related to the hill and what the history behind it and um, there was no other name we could give it it said what it was where it is and it's obviously still here to this day of course there is a place called broccoli in south london of which i knew nothing at that time and had we known we might have had chosen a different name, but that's how it came out. We didn't want to call it Radio Stanmore, and of the ideas that were available, Broccoli sounded suffi had sufficient gravitas. Originally, by the bedside, there was a simple switch which selected, if I remember rightly, three positions off. Well, that's a very useful position. Um, light program and the home service. The home service is, was what is now called Radio 4 and the light programme what is now called Radio 2. When we broadcast, we switched off Radio 2 and replaced it. Uh, nobody ever complained about that, by the way. Uh, and the headphones that they listened on, uh, I don't have one, I can't picture it clearly in my mind, but it was of the style that would have been popular in the 1920s and 30s amongst enthusiasts and of course used extensively with the military uh, during World War II. Not like the headphones that you're wearing at the moment. <laughs> um, the headphones were basic but they sounded remarkably good and an interesting observation again about Radio Broccoli was that unlike our competitors 
in certain other hospitals, we went to a great deal of effort to get the best possible sound quality into those headphones. And because they were early headphones, that made a difference. Um, so that's how we originally broadcast. Except in the children's wards, they didn't let them have headphones for safety reasons. They had loudspeakers. The library didn't exist as such. We had a small pile of records that uh, came from individuals' collections, many of which were records that individuals didn't want. <laughs> so we thought, well, we'll give this to the radio station. Music for the station was initially our own material, our own records, um, even cassettes, I think. Um, but we did approach the record companies and the record companies were very good at giving us demo discs that they didn't want anymore when they had clear outs so we had we built up a library that way but and some people actually recorded it off the radio which we shouldn't have done but mostly it was done from vinyl um from our own record collections and from what was offered by the record companies who were quite good really mike alanek i think came up with and i don't know where he got this from but it was extremely useful there's a, a famous uh, publication called the New Musical Express. But what apparently tended to happen was that if you were a record producer and you wanted your record to be well-reviewed in the NME, you took your records to the offices of the NME who, depending on how favorably they looked upon you, would lis listen to your material and give an opinion, which was published. It was a powerful organ in this direction. So the New Musical Express had boxes and boxes and boxes of records, most of which were dross, uh, which, were, which it had been invited to review. I don't think we were the only charitable organization who were invited, but we were invited to go along, or we asked um, if we could go along, and grab arms full of these records. We brought them up here and we go through them and we also would listen to them. There were cover versions of famous pieces of music, so we kept those even if they weren't by the most popular artist. There was once in a while, you say, oh gosh, this was in the top 10 and it's found its way into this shoebox full of dross. So we started growing the library and every few months or every few weeks we would go down to NME with their permission and grab all the uh, shoeboxes or a drawer full of all these old records and bring them up here and go through them. And that added to the library as well. So on the 2nd of October 1966, Radio Broccoli officially went live for the first time. But what do the founder trustees remember of that day? I remember the event. It was a cold October evening and somebody quite wisely had decided to invite the local MP, Roy Roebuck who was requested not to make it a part of political broadcast, um, which he did. And, um, and I think he was curtailed by the wonderful Mike Solomons. And I remember him holding the microphone, because we didn't actually have nice mic stands like the ones we've got in this studio now. And he sort of wasn't quite ready to go, which was fine. Uh, and he sort of held the microphone against his waistcoat like this. So all that was going on was rubbing sound like that, which at the time, and nowadays as a sound engineer, it would appall me if I saw that happening anyway. And even then at 16 years old, I thought, that's, that's not right. You know, 
if you're not ready, don't say anything, but don't rub it against your body. So we were in there. We had uh, we did have an angle poise lamp on the table, and we had the mixer. And he stood and he gave a short speech, and um, opened Radio Broccoli, October the second. Um, was it seven thirty or eight o'clock in the evening, Sunday, October the second, nineteen sixty-six, and we played some records. It all seemed fresh in the mind at the time, but fifty years is a long time. I was 18 years old when we started. I'm 68 now. That's a bit older, you know. And I'm now the doddery old fool instead of the teenage nuisance. And as a result, uh, yes, I have forgotten things. Um, I've forgotten who the members were at the time. I only remember some. Um, forgotten individual programs that seemed very important at the time. Uh, it's it's a mark of the time, and uh, probably your older listeners will go, yes, that's happened to me too, and the younger listeners listeners will say, silly old fool. On next week's program, we'll look back on the rest of the 1960s, from the early shows. And I can't remember who was doing the bingo before me, but that person was on his stand down, so I put my hand up and said, I can do that, <laughs> and uh, that was agreed, and uh, here I am. Uh, 29 years later. Next year will be the 30th anniversary. To a special trip down the M1. It's probably the only time that I was ever going to drive without seatbelts. They weren't legal requirements then. At about 20 miles an hour on an uncrowded motorway. Uh, and um, well, generally we were messing about. The story of Radio Broccoli continues. <laughs>